0: Scroll and dagger presents the pensive tower episode 9 the forgotten. This is the memory of Betni Kanaruk, Torox, aged 29, identified as female. Memory regards an archaeological discovery in the Dogger region of the Wind Islands and was donated on the 21st of Stillsky in the year 726. Inscribed by Paxton Ferox on the 4th of Bear Tree, 729. We begin. So much history is unknown to us. Think about it. The written records only go back a few hundred years before unification. That's barely a thousand years of properly documented history. That's nothing. The church can prattle on about oral traditions all it likes doesn't change the fact that so much has been lost and forgotten. It's incredible to think how much more we might know, how much more advanced we might be, if we had some record of the time before. Sure, we have legends from back then, and If you look at the similarities, it is sometimes possible to piece together certain events, but it's not the same as having real primary sources from those times. But I don't need to tell you people that, do I? I mean, that's what this place is for, right? To make sure nothing is forgotten if anything like the collapse happens again. Sorry, I'm wasting your time. I'm a historian, in case you hadn't already guessed, though my real passion is archaeology. The written histories are all well and good, but It's in the ruins and artefacts left behind that we can really see the lives that our ancestors lived. I knew I wanted to get into history ever since I was a little girl. I was born and raised in Romia, a small city in Sangland, but when I was about five, my mother got too old for her tour's liking and was dismissed. She then had two choices, either try and join a new harem with a child in tow, or leave and make a new life elsewhere. She chose the latter and brought me to Santeria. While we were waiting at customs, one of the guards gave me this dog-eared old book to read. It was full of old stories and legends, and just like that, I was hooked. When I got the opportunity to go and study ancient history and archaeology at Windcourt University, I jumped at the chance. Cut to ten years later, and I was out with a first undergraduate degree and a master's degree, and was preparing to study for my doctorate but first I needed to get more practical fieldwork under my belt. I had plenty of research experience, but nothing to show that I could apply what I knew in a practical way. So I began looking for digs that I could get involved with. I know I spoke a bit about how little we know of our own history, but truth be told, we are living in something of a golden age of archaeological discovery. Every year, more things are coming to light, and the federal government seems especially eager to fund archaeological digs. The upshot of this is that there were a fair few digs on going around the Federation that needed research assistants who didn't mind getting their hands dirty. My attention was drawn to one that was going on in the Wind Islands archipelago. There had been some kind of shift in the tidal currents or something like that a few years ago which had left this area of land that had been a mile off the coast of the Dogger Islands suddenly high and dry. Some local fishermen had gone out there and discovered some old ruins obviously weathered by years underwater, but still definitely there. The dig had been organised and funded by the Restrock Rock University, but when I sent my request to join the dig, it was granted pretty quickly. I guess they needed all the help they could get, but even so, I was surprised at just how keen they seemed to be to have me on the dig. I became a lot less surprised when, after enduring nearly a month-long journey by cart and boat to get out there to the Dogger Islands, I saw exactly the kind of place it was. I'd been told to expect more extreme weather than I was used to, but I was certainly not expecting the deluge that hit me in the face when I stepped off the boat. The Dogger Islands are right at the far westward side of the archipelago, and are exposed to strong wind and rain from off the sea, especially in the autumn months. Obviously, this presented a problem. The site was, at least on the surface, a few worn-down stone pillars set in a formation that might indicate some kind of great hall or maybe a temple. But that was just what we could see. Who knew what there might be under the ground around the site? And there was no guarantee that the tide wouldn't shift again and bury it all underwater. But excavating in heavy rain and strong wind is tricky, to say the least, and if the trenches started filling up with water, that could damage the as-yet unearthed artefacts so we needed to work fast to preserve as much of what was there as we could. I was hard at work pretty much an hour after arrival, and kept at it for the next few days. Anytime we were not working in a trench, it was covered with one of the numerous tarpaulins that the initial team had brought with them. It wasn't constant rain and wind, thank the three. In fact, for quite a few days we had some pretty glorious sunshine. Unfortunately, we weren't able to enjoy it because the lead archaeologist on the site decided this would be a limited window of opportunity and pushed us to work twice as hard to make the most of the break in the weather. It was the right decision, but that didn't stop the lot of us giving him some pretty angry looks when he wasn't looking. The lead was named Professor Yethro Cunham. He was a pencori, so he knew a thing or two about nautical weather, He spent a lot of his time watching the sky when he wasn't poring over the charts and documents that cluttered his desk. I'd only spoken to him once, which was when I'd first arrived. He'd given me my plot and the equipment I was to use and told me to get to it. Since then, he'd stayed in the mobile office, a big tent that had been erected near the dig site, or else moving through the trenches looking over what we were doing. The weather was changeable, to say the least. We'd have a few days of hot sun, only to be hit by monsoon winds the next day. This went on for a few weeks. Progress was good, but I could tell Professor Cunham wasn't seeing the results he wanted. I was as determined as he was to see the dig succeed. This was exactly the sort of thing my application needed, and I wanted to make sure I had something worth writing about to put in. I thought I might have found that something when I stumbled upon what I took at first to be a small idol, We'd had a few finds by that time, some pottery and bits of stonework, but nothing really noteworthy. I thought I'd found something that would be the first indication of what this place really was. I approached it carefully. It had rained the night before, so the ground was claggy and thick, so a brush wasn't going to be much use, but I had a small trowel which I used to gently scrape away the excess mud. As I unearthed the thing, it looked to me more and more like some kind of idol, It was no bigger than my fist, and made of the same grey stone as the pillars that stood on the surface, and, as far as I could tell, it was fixed to the floor, which would explain why it had not been carried away by the tide or the currents. It looked like a small person, their features hidden by a deep hood. Their arms were crossed over their torso, as if they were laid in a coffin. But, after I brushed the last of the mud away, I saw that, in its right hand, it was holding what looked like a key, That key suddenly glowed white. I heard this shifting of stone and the ground around me began moving. Then a fissure began to form as the ground started falling down into this opening chasm. I thought for a moment that it was an earthquake or a sinkhole, and I scrabbled away from the widening pit. But then, as suddenly as it had started, it stopped. There was a loud noise, a sort of clunk, like something heavy falling into place, and then everything was still. I carefully crawled to the edge of the hole and looked down. To my surprise, I saw a stone set of stairs leading down into the gloomy blackness. The hole had apparently been caused by the opening of some kind of automated trap door. I know that sounds insane. The ruin was more than a thousand years old. There's no way any kind of mechanism would still function after that length of time, to say nothing of the damage that the salt water would have caused... But it did function. Perfectly. And there was a staircase. I know I should have gone to Professor Cunham. I did look around, but no one was nearby. I think they must have gone to lunch or something. I should have gone to find someone, but... I know it was stupid, but I couldn't resist. This was potentially the archaeological find of the decade, if not greater. Who knew what might be down there? I had to see it so I grabbed a torch and some matches from my bag and carefully began descending the steps. All that earth that had been lying on top of the door had obviously fallen onto the stairs, so the surface was now soft and uneven, so I made sure I had a firm footing on each step before I transferred my weight to the next one. It probably didn't take that long, but to me, it felt like ages. Every second I was worried someone was going to discover the hole and see me down there. Now that I was down there, I dreaded that most of all. If I was discovered, there was a chance I'd be kicked off the project, or worse, in my opinion, I wouldn't be credited with the discovery. Finally, I reached the bottom. I suppose I was expecting to find a long, narrow corridor stretching out before me, disappearing into the darkness, maybe splitting off into a few different choices to leave me lost and confused. But it wasn't like that at all. There was a corridor that led into the gloom, but I could see a faint light ahead. Even so, I used one of my matches to light the torch before I began. The first thing I saw was that the corridor was made of well-cut stone. The second was that it was bone dry. I had half expected it to be still underwater, or at the very least overgrown with sea plants. But it was as if it had spent no time underwater at all that door or whatever it was had kept the place perfectly sealed all the years it had been down there the air was cold and stale not surprising i suppose if the door was strong enough to keep out the water it definitely would have kept all the air in i trod carefully i had heard all those old stories about booby traps and pressure plates in ancient tombs obviously most of the time there's no truth to them but that mechanical door had got me second guessing what i thought i knew at least in this particular place fortunately there were no traps no hidden spike pits or poison darts shot from the walls i walked down the corridor without anything happening except the echoes of my footprints getting slightly louder as i approached the other end that made sense a few seconds later when i reached the other end and looked out into an immense open chamber it was lit after a fashion by a shaft of light that came in through a circular hole in the ceiling. It was then reflected around the room by a system of mirrors that cast the room into a kind of gloomy half-light. It was completely dry in here too. I'm not sure how. Surely if that hole up in the ceiling, wherever it was up on the surface, if it could let in light, it would have let in the seawater. But no, here too, the place was dry. By the dim light of those mirrors, I began looking around to see if I could determine just what exactly this place was. There was plenty to see. Mosaics lined the walls of the chamber, each one showing a curious pattern or design that I didn't recognise. There were pages showing a script I couldn't identify, preserved beneath glass. But what my attention went to, what I went to examine first, was at the centre of the chamber. There, in the middle of that huge space, was an empty circle, perhaps 20 paces across. It looked to me like it might be a space for oration, maybe for a priest or some other high-ranking person to address a crowd. Standing around the edge of this circle were seven tall statues. They looked a little like the one I had found above ground, the one that I'm pretty sure opened that door and let me in, but these were nearly 15 feet tall and carved from I think black marble. They were Well, quite a bit more imposing than the little one I'd found earlier. These statues also wore deep hoods that obscured their faces, as well as long thick cloaks. Because of this, it was impossible to tell if the subjects were supposed to be men or women, or even whether they were human or one of the other peoples. All I could see of them were their legs, just visible beneath the cloaks and wearing high boots, and their arms, which reached out from beneath their cloaks to grasp the hilts of long double-edged swords. The swords were the only way I could see that the statues really differed from each other. The only similarity was that they all looked very odd. One held a sword that looked almost as thin as a poker, while another one held a more rippled blade. There was another that looked like it had been sculpted to resemble clouds. Each sword was just as strange as the last, And each was held in the grasp of one of those intimidating cloaked figures that seemed to glare down at me despite their hidden faces as I stood at the centre. The sight of them stirred a memory, something from my childhood, stories that my mother had told me and my younger brother before bedtime, back when we'd both enjoyed those old fairy tales, the stories of the Maraman heroes. It was hard not to think about those stories as I looked up at those grand and austere figures. It was as I was turning on the spot taking in those statues that I saw again the mosaics I had noticed when I had first entered, the ones that had seemed to show a strange pattern. I had only glanced at them before, but I now saw that they all, in fact, showed the same design. Three broken circles, one inside the other, with the outermost circle resting atop the base of what I think was a stylized arrowhead that pointed downwards towards the floor. There were seven of these mosaics, each one positioned so that if you were standing at the centre of the chamber, as I was, it would align with the back of one of the cloaked statues. Curious, I walked to one of the mosaics to take a closer look by the light of my torch. There was another symbol, at the centre of the innermost smallest circle, It was a small teardrop design, though it was red, so I'm pretty sure it was meant to be a drop of blood. I moved on to the next mosaic. There was a different design at the middle of this one. I think it was supposed to be some kind of animal tooth, like a wolf's fang or something like that. Only, it wasn't bone-coloured or even white. It was black. I carried on around the mosaics. Each one had a different symbol in the middle a bronze set of scales, two entwined emerald snakes, an eye with a pitch-black pupil and iris, a scroll and, finally, an open hand with fingers pointed downwards. I had no idea what they meant. I still don't. I can't find any reference to those symbols being used by any organisation in any written history I can find. But, like I said, there's a lot of history that we've forgotten. I made the decision to head back then, I'd been down there too long already. Some of the others would probably be looking for me by now. I had satisfied my curiosity, and I knew I should go back to the surface and tell Professor Cunham what I had found. And that was pretty much the moment that I realised I couldn't see the door I'd come in by anymore. I don't mean that it was obscured by the gloom or anything like that. I was looking right at the place I had come in by. The door just wasn't there anymore. It was just a stretch of blank wall. I rushed over, pressing my hand against the stonework, hoping it was some kind of illusion or trick. Maybe a panel had slid over the entrance while I wasn't looking, merely obscuring the tunnel. But no. No matter how much I pushed or hammered, the wall remained there and very much solid. I started to panic a little at this point. This chamber was an incredible find, but that did not mean I wanted to be trapped down here and become part of it. I began searching desperately for another way out any way out i think it was as soon as i thought that that i noticed another door that i had not seen earlier that i was certain had not been there before maybe it wasn't the best idea but at that point i didn't see any better options i left the big circular chamber and found myself in a long open hallway the mirror light was here too but As well as that at the far end of the corridor i saw there was a huge ornate window which was filled with light not sunlight i'm certain of that we were too far underground for that to be possible it was a pale pure white light that shone through the window obscuring anything that might lie on the other side there were more statues in the corridor not as tall as the ones in the circle chamber only six or maybe seven feet tall though these ones stood on plinths, so they still towered over me as I walked down the corridor. These figures also wore those hooded cloaks, though the hoods were not as deep as the first ones had been, so it was possible to catch glimpses of features within the depths of the cowl. One had the pig-like nose and tusks of an Auckland. Another had reptilian features. I think it was a diamond, since a Dracarian would surely have been bigger. I also saw one with horns curving up out of the cowl, making it a bull torox, That was pretty crazy. I'd never heard of any bull leaving Sangland, so what would one, even one made of stone, be doing here? These ones also all held weapons, but they weren't all swords. One bearded figure had his hands resting on the head of a huge, long-handled hammer, while the bull torox I'd seen was holding what looked like a double-headed poleaxe. I won't waste your time telling you about every statue, partly because i don't remember all of them but what i really wanted to tell you about was the mosaic i found in that corridor it wasn't another of those circle designs this one ran the full length of the corridor and seemed to depict well i think it was a chronicle of the people who had used this place on the far left i could see people dressed in what i can only describe as very old-fashioned in tunics and dust coats and woolen hoods Their faces looked fearful, and they were running away. Behind them, looming over them, were fearful-looking creatures. Some I recognised as kiroks. I had the chance to see a dead one once in Wincourt's biology department, but others I had no idea about. Some looked vaguely human, but with huge wings and vicious features, and others looked like nothing I'd seen before, impossible things that I was sure couldn't exist in nature bizarre geometric shapes that stared with eyes that were too real and yet too unreal all these and more loomed over the people but then from this dark scene arose a mountain at the top of which stood now familiar images the tall warriors in hooded cloaks they wielded weapons of fire and darkness itself hammers that sent out lightning bolts and axes that shone with light to the right of this image I saw these warriors attacking the monsters. That part got pretty graphic. There was a lot of beheading and dismemberment. But then, to the right of this image, the warriors were depicted as triumphant, holding their weapons aloft as the sun shone behind them and the people cheered. Looking at that mosaic, all those old stories came back to mind. And I know how this sounds, but in that moment, I became convinced that what i'd found was some ancient meeting place or temple of the maraman it made a kind of sense i mean all those stories had to come from somewhere perhaps they hadn't been exactly as they were in the tales but there had to have been a seed of truth that grew into all those stories and if it was that then this might be one of the most momentous finds in the history of the federation i swallowed my excitement Reminded myself that I still needed to find a way out, I turned my attention back to the corridor. It ended in a short set of stairs that led up to a raised circular platform that adjoined the wall with the shining window. I climbed up the steps. There were two more statues at the top, one on either side. Each held a long spear that looked like the ones you'd use for hunting wild boar, held out so the blades touched over my head. The platform was empty except for a strange symbol inlaid into the floor at the very centre. It looked like some kind of rune, but I'm not a linguist or a typographer or anything like that, so I can't say what language it might be from. Witness it might not have been a rune at all, I have no idea. What I do know is, as I drew close, the thing began glowing. Now, I've heard enough stories to know that strange glowing symbols are best avoided, so I turned to get out of there, or rather I tried to. My feet were frozen to the floor. I I couldn't move. There was a flash of light so bright that I was blinded for a moment. The next thing I knew I was lying on the ground staring at the sky. I heard a shout of alarm and turned to see Elena, one of the other archaeologists on the team, running over to me. She said I'd been missing for a day. I was dazed I looked around and saw that I was back where I'd been when I'd found that little statue. But that statue, and the door down into that cavern, they were both gone. Final notes. (laughs) The Marrowman. I remember hearing those stories when I was a child. Merriam and her companions, Haken the Beast Slayer, Geherent the Good. It certainly would have been rather exciting to find out there was some truth to those tales, that such people might have once existed. Unfortunately, it doesn't appear any evidence will be forthcoming any time soon. The dig reports show that the excavation around the temple site found various examples of pre-Dark Age pottery and assorted other artifacts, but if this secret underground part of the temple was ever found again, it was kept out of official reports. We contacted Miss Kanarook. She told us she was never able to find the underground chamber again, but remained confident that the information donated was accurate. West Rock University is still conducting surveys in the Dogger region of the Wind Islands, so I suppose we shall have to wait and see if anything like what Miss Canarook remembers turns up again. Inscription complete. The Pensive Tower is a podcast distributed by Scroll and Dagger and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution non-commercial sharealike 4.0 international license. Today's episode was written and performed by Gareth Cadogan and produced by Gina Moriarty. Original theme by Evangelos Anastasatos with artwork by Cassie Shepard. For more information such as ways to support us or to view show notes, visit us at scrollanddagger.com. And please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.